Good morning. We are going to be reading it's a little bit of a longer passage, John 7, 25 through 52. Therefore, some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, Is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? And look, he is speaking publicly, and they are saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is a Christ, do they? However, we know where this man is from. But wherever the, whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. Jesus therefore cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I am from, and I, am not, I have not come of myself. But he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. They were seeking, therefore, to seize him, and no man laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. But many of the multitude believed in him, and they were saying, When the Christ shall come, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? The Pharisees heard the multitude muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Jesus therefore said, For a little while I am with you, then I go to him who sent me. You seek me and shall not find me, and where I am you cannot come. The Jews therefore said to one another, Where does this man intend to go, that we shall not find him? He is not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? What is the statement that he said? You will seek me and will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believe in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Some of the multitude, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, This certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, This is the Christ. So others were saying, Surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there arose a division in the multitude because of him, and some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. The officers therefore came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they said to them, where, why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, Never did a man speak the way this man speaks. The Pharisees therefore answered them, You are not also being led astray, have you? No one of the rulers of the Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But the multitude which does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus said to them, he who came to him before, being one of them, our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? They answered and said to him, you are not also from Galilee, are you? Search 
and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Then, Father, Lord, we just come to you this morning and we thank you for your word. We thank you that you came and that you allowed us to know who you are. And you also allowed us to know who your, who your father is and allowed us to have a relationship with you. Lord, we thank you that you are the one who we can come to when we're thirsty and hunger and hungry and you satisfy our souls. Lord, I pray as your word is, is being taught this morning by Tom, that that Holy Spirit would work mightily today. Lord, that we would uh, be able to see you for who you are, and that we would follow you, Lord. I just pray this in your name. Amen. Good morning. How do you respond when someone asks you where you're from? You, do you tell them where you were born, or do you talk to them about where you spent most of your growing up years, or do you just tell them that they dangled a preposition? Jesus talked a whole lot about where he was from. It's a major theme throughout John's Gospel, starting with the very first verse of the very first chapter. The question, where is this man Jesus from, absolutely fills the passage that we're looking at this morning. As I see it, there are four powerful connections in this passage, four truths about the person and work of Jesus that all tie back directly to where he's from. The first is who he is. The second, where he was heading. The third, what he did. And finally, what he said. All four of those go back directly to the question, where is this Jesus from? The connection that dominates this passage from the beginning to end, is the inviolable link, the inseparable link between where Jesus is from and who Jesus is. The Jewish religious leaders and the multitude gathered in Jerusalem and Jesus himself keep coming back to that connection throughout the passage and actually all the way into chapter 8. I find it a little humorous to, to observe the different angles on this question that the people in Jerusalem came up with at this point. Early in the passage, they're trying to figure out how their own religious leaders will answer the question, who is Jesus? Uh, they aren't sure yet if those leaders really think this is the Christ or if they're still trying to kill him because they don't think he's the Christ. But their whole discussion about who Jesus is revolves around where he came from. In verse 27, they say, we know where this man is from, but whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. But later in the passage, when some of the multitude say, this is the Christ, others say, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David? from Bethlehem, the village where David was. So it's interesting that some were rejecting Jesus because they were sure they knew where he was from and they were convinced that they weren't supposed to know where the Christ was from whenever he showed up. And others were rejecting him because they did know where he was from and it was the wrong place. It was Galilee and it was supposed to be Bethlehem. 
You know what, what's really fascinating is that both assertions about the Messiah, the promised Messiah, <laughs> were actually true. God's Messiah would come from Bethlehem just as God prophesied through Micah hundreds of years before in Micah chapter 5. And, and nobody on earth would be able to pin down where Messiah was from. He would be from Bethlehem and He would not be from Bethlehem. I'll come back to that in just a moment. It's also kind of humorous to me that nobody was posing these questions to Jesus. <laughs> they were all muttering under their breath to each other, careful not to be heard by their own religious leaders, lest they be caught disagreeing with people who could do them harm. It's amazing how strong a motivator that is for, for so many people. Nobody actually asked Jesus to explain any of this. Of course, as happens a lot in this Gospel, as we see unfold a lot, Jesus knew what they were thinking anyway. And of course, He often answered questions that people didn't bother to come out and ask. And He often didn't answer the questions that they did come out and ask. He chose to answer this one. But not until He challenged the thinking of this misguided crowd. In verse 28, he said, You both know me and know where I am from. But interestingly, in chapter 8, verses 14 and 15, he says the opposite. He says, I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. And then he gives the reason why they don't know. He says, you people judge according to the flesh. You judge according to the flesh. See, they knew facts about Jesus, but they didn't know the truth about Jesus. They knew that He was a carpenter's son from Galilee, so from one angle, they knew who He was and where He was from. And if these Jewish officials had enough clout with the Roman authorities to, to have Jesus crucified at their hands, they certainly had enough clout to ask the Roman authorities where this man was born. He's in their census records. His family pays taxes in Bethlehem every year. It's not that hard to figure out. That would have been a, an important piece of evidence to get them to reconsider their conclusion about who Jesus was. But here's what's amazing. The very passage in Micah that told them that Messiah would be from Bethlehem also clearly told them that He would not be from Bethlehem. Listen as I read from Micah chapter 5, starting at verse 2. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. To be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. And then verse 4 says, He will arise, He will shepherd His flock in the strength of Yahweh, in the majesty of the name of Yahweh as God, at that time, He will be great to the ends of the earth, and this one will be our peace. The Jews rightly believed that that prophecy was talking about Messiah. Most of them still do, the ones that pay attention to Scripture. Those Jews who knew what the prophets had written knew that Messiah was going to come from Bethlehem. But they should have known from that same prophecy that that could not be the whole story about the origin of Messiah. 
Because that same prophecy said His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. See, He can't be from Bethlehem in the truest sense of the word if He existed before Bethlehem existed. And before the earth existed. And before all of creation existed. Some people think that the Old Testament doesn't talk about the deity of Jesus. It absolutely does. Jesus speaks over and over in this chapter about where He's from, but He never says a word about being from anywhere on earth. He never responds at all to the whole Galilee-Bethlehem debate. Not a word. He never says a word about where He's from according to the flesh. So where does He say He was from? His answer to that question throughout this Gospel is always more about the person than it is about the place. Verses 28 and 29, He says, I have not come of Myself, but He who sent Me is true, whom you do not know. I am from Him. And He sent Me. I am from Him. He doesn't say, I am from there. (laughs) He says, I'm from Him. Alright, so Jesus was a carpenter's son who was born in Bethlehem and grew up in Galilee. Those were just facts that were accurate only according to or in the realm of the flesh. The only value in knowing those things was so that you could realize the very truth that Philip enthusiastically proclaimed to his good friend Nathaniel in chapter 1 of this Gospel when he said, Nathaniel, we have found Him of whom Moses and the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. That's Him. When the skeptical Nathaniel then went and actually met face to face with Jesus, he ended up saying to Jesus, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. See, Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee is Jesus the Christ whose goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. He is the Son of God who came down out of heaven from the Father. Now we're talking truth about where Jesus is from. Who Jesus is is inseparably tied to where He came from. And where He came from was out of heaven from the Father. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. If the most dominant connection in this passage is the link between where Jesus is from and who Jesus is, the second most dominant connection is the link between where Jesus is from and where He was heading. During His brief time here among men, Jesus made it crystal clear that this cursed world was never His home. And He made it equally clear that He was constantly heading back to where He was from. That path went directly through the cross. Now that all may seem pretty elementary at first glance, but it's foundational to all that Jesus said and did while He was here. And because we're followers of Jesus, it's foundational to all that we are to do and say 
while we're here. Listen to what Jesus says in verses 33 to 36. Right after we're told that the Pharisees had sent their squad of temple policemen to go seize him and arrest him and bring him back to the temple. Jesus therefore said, verse 33, For a little while longer I am with you. Then I go to him who sent me. You shall seek me and not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. The Jews therefore said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we shall not find him? He's not intending to go to to the dispersion among the Greeks. There were Jews all over the Roman Empire and dispersed all over the place. And they were in Gentile cities. Some of them were Greek-speaking Jews and there were Greek-speaking Gentiles. And these guys are saying, is Jesus, is he saying you're not going to be able to track me down because I'm going to go out into the, into the vast Roman Empire, minister to Gentiles? He says, what is this statement that he said, you will seek me and will not find me and where I am, you cannot come. And this really got these Jews torqued. They were upset. The new word is triggered in case you hadn't heard that. Maybe that was because they had a a pretty good idea what he actually meant. But they didn't fess up to that. Jesus' words here about where he was heading were a slap in the face to these guys. They had just commissioned soldiers to go out and lay hands on him and bring him back because they were already charting out the, the whole path to his crucifixion. They intended to kill him. Knowing what was in their wicked hearts, Jesus told them that he was headed back to the one who had sent him. The very clear implication, if you see those words in this context, is that their plan to do away with him could not undo his plan to return to his father. It was as if he was saying to them, you can send whomever you wish to come and get me, but I'm still going where I'm going. And what's so marvelous about all that is that the first would ensure the second. Beautiful irony, of course, in the much that happens with Jesus. The plan by the Jewish leadership to do away with Jesus would actually guarantee His soon return to His place of glory at His Father's right hand. Their plan to stop Him from completing what He was sent by His Father to do would be used by God to ensure that He would fully accomplish that mission. Six months after this festival, Jesus was crucified during another festival, the Feast of the Passover. Three days later, He was raised from the dead, and 40 days after His resurrection, He ascended from earth to heaven and went back where He came from to the right hand of His Father. And at the next feast after that, the Feast of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, Peter said these words to this same group of Jews in Jerusalem. He said, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through Him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men. 
and put him to death. And God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Even death couldn't lay hold of Christ. God did that to His Son, not men. By His predetermined plan and foreknowledge. Now they were guilty before God for putting those nails in His hand just as we are. His hands and His feet. But God's the one who orchestrated every second of it. Who was actually calling the shots here? It's pretty obvious, isn't it? (laughs) In verse 30, John 7 says, They were seeking therefore to seize Him, but no man laid his hand on Him because His hour had not yet come. Verse 44 says, Some of them wanted to seize Him, but no one laid hands on Him. (laughs) Wouldn't you just love to have been there to see what that looked like? Every time these guys gathered a group and said, Okay, now let's rush Him. They rushed him and nothing happened. They couldn't touch him. They could not touch him. They would finally get their hands on Jesus exactly when God the Father had predetermined that they would when His hour had come and not a second before. So who was calling the shots? It's pretty obvious. Who's calling the shots, beloved, when the world opposes you for following Christ? For doing the will of God? Who's calling the shots? It's always Him. It's never men. It's never, ever men. It's not those who follow Jesus that have cause to fear. It's those who oppose Jesus. Jesus said to His opponents in this passage, You shall seek Me and not find Me, and where I am, you cannot come. You don't want the Lord of glory to say those words to you the way He meant them when He said them to these men. He said those same words again to these same guys in chapter 8, but He adds one very important statement. Listen for the the added statement. Chapter 8, verse 21, He said, therefore, again to them, I go away and you shall seek Me and you shall die in your sin." Where I am going, you cannot come. When we get to the end of chapter 13, we'll hear Jesus say the last part of that to His own disciples. Where I am going, you cannot come. But when He says that to them, there's a, there's a marvelous twist. I won't tell you what that is. Most of you know what it is, but I just tell that to you now to keep you interested. One other important note here about where Jesus was headed. Uh, During His time on earth, Jesus continually had the mindset of a pilgrim, a traveler. He was always moving toward His destination, which went through the cross. And His destination was His Father. There was no way anyone or anything was going to keep Him from getting there. And that's exactly what He declared to these people. Because of that singular focus, Jesus was entirely unattached to the things of this world. That's why it was of no consequence to Him to talk about where on earth He was from. That was of no no importance to Him. 
the connection between that mindset and this festival that was underway in Jerusalem at this point is not accidental. This very festival, the Feast of Booths, was given to Israel by God to foster a pilgrim's mindset in his people. They pitched tents all over the city of Jerusalem and they slept in those tents during this week-long festival to remember the time in their history when they had no permanent houses and the land that they were walking on was not theirs. The time when they were heading toward the destination, the dwelling place promised to their forefathers by God where He would dwell in their midst ultimately forever. Even after they had come into the earthly representation of that promised place, which was just a picture, by the way, they were supposed to live not as citizens of that land, but as those destined to a better place, a place in which God would dwell in their midst indeed forever, the redeemed Jerusalem, which is talked about a whole bunch in the Old Testament, by the way. It's not a new idea in the New Testament. Just look up the word Zion in the Old Testament. That's how we're supposed to live, beloved, as aliens, as foreigners, pleased to dwell in tents, looking for the city which has the real foundations, whose architect and builder is God. The third powerful connection in this passage is the link between where Jesus was from and what he did while he was here. And there are just a couple of things I want to talk about that he did that are mentioned in this passage. The first is that he made more rivers. He made more rivers. His amazing declaration in verses 37 to 39 draws our attention one more time to this great festival that's going on in Jerusalem, the Feast of Booths. Back in chapter 6, Jesus had told the multitudes in Capernaum that it was not Moses who gave them bread in the wilderness. It was God who had graciously provided the manna, the bread, bread from heaven that sustained their lives during their 40 years of wilderness wanderings. But His real point was not about physical provision. It was about spiritual life. He went on, of course, in chapter 6 to declare Himself to be the true bread. The bread out of heaven that comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Now in chapter 7, He's going to talk about that same spiritual life using the metaphor of water instead of bread. The Jews were camping out in tabernacles or tents all over the city of Jerusalem to remember and celebrate the time when, according to Deuteronomy 8, quote, God led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought water for you out of the rock of Flint. In Exodus 17 and again in Numbers 20, that's at Mount Sinai and that's at Kadesh Barnea when they're just about to try to go into the land the first time. God caused water to come forth abundantly from a barren rock in the desert. Psalm 78 tells us a little about the abundance of that provision. It says, He split the rocks in the wilderness and He gave them abundant drink like the ocean depths. He brought forth streams also from the rock and He caused waters 
to run down like rivers. It wasn't a little bit of water. Now listen to the words of Jesus here in John 7, verses 37 to 39. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and He cried out saying, If any man is thirsty, let him come to Me. Let him come to Me and drink. He who believes in Me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow what? Rivers of living water. But this He spoke of the Spirit. The water is the Spirit whom those who believed in Him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So here on the greatest day of the grandest celebration in the Israelite calendar, the Feast of Booze, which remembered God's miraculous provision of bread from heaven and a river of water from rock, Jesus declares Himself to be the source of rivers of living water that He will cause to flow from the innermost being of everyone who believes in Him. He promised to make more rivers. That's what He did while He was here. He made more rivers. And He's still doing that. Listen to Paul's powerful words to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 10. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And listen to this. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. The rock was Christ. The rock in the wilderness from whom rivers of living water flowed to give life to His people is the Word who came down out of heaven from God to give life to men and women and children. And now, (laughs) He's giving life to the world through us. In order to use us as, as these rivers He's talking about, He has to make His place of origin our place of origin. Everything that's true of Jesus is true because of where He's from. And beloved, everything that's true of us who belong to Jesus is true of us because of where He's from. And He makes us to be from that same person. You know what happens to us when we're plucked out of the darkness and planted firmly in the kingdom of God's beloved Son? His place becomes our place. We're not from here anymore. We're from the Father in Christ. That transformation of our place of origin will be a central theme in chapters 13 to 17 and in the Upper Room Discourse, which is Jesus' last conversation with His disciples just before His arrest and crucifixion. So we'll look at that idea of a changed place, a transformed place of origin a lot more when we get there. If you and I, though, if we're going to be ambassadors for Jesus in this world, if we're going to be rivers of living water in this desert wilderness in which we live, we have to come continually to the same spiritual rock that followed Israel in the wilderness. And that rock is Christ. We cannot chase after 
the mirages. Mirages like the approval of men or the amassing of money or comfort or worldly security or power over people to ensure that that other garbage isn't taken away from us. We cannot go after mirages. We have to go with steadfast devotion after the source of life, who is Jesus Christ. Always. We have to go to the one, to the rock who makes us rivers. The last connection that we're going to consider from this passage is the connection between where Jesus is from and what he said while he was here. In verses 45 to 52, John opens the curtain for us on a conversation that was going on among the most powerful leaders among the Jews throughout the Roman Empire. These were the guys whom all Jews answered. Earlier in the chapter, these Pharisees had sent a group of temple policemen to arrest Jesus and bring him back to them at the temple. But when the soldiers got back to the temple, they didn't have Jesus. They came back empty-handed. When the Pharisees, their bosses who sent them on that mission, asked what was up, where was their prisoner, the answer that they got wasn't an answer they wanted to hear. Now you and I might kind of imagine what they were going to say. We might think that they would have said, well, there were so many people in the crowd that were sympathetic to Jesus that it would have started a riot if we had tried to lay hands on him. They might have said, well, we did try to lay hands on him. You know, we gang rushed him, but but every time we tried, something there was this force, this supernatural force that kept us from doing that. But they didn't say either of those things. What did they say? What was their reason for not laying hold of him? Never did a man speak the way this man speaks. It's probably not the safest answer to give to this particular batch of bosses, but it was certainly true. Never did a man speak the way this man speaks. Why? (laughs) Because never did a man come to earth from the presence of God the Father. What Jesus said was determined entirely by where He was from, by whom he was from. Earlier in John 7, Jesus said to the Jewish multitude, my teaching is not mine, but it's his who sent me. That's where my teaching comes from. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7, Matthew said the multitudes were amazed at Jesus' teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as one of their scribes, not as one of these guys that were after him here. Never did a man speak the way this man speaks. Think about it. Jesus came into the temple, the very headquarters of the top level religious leaders in Israel. And as we saw in the first part of this chapter, he publicly indicted them. He indicted those teachers of the law for completely missing the point of the law. For judging according to appearance instead of righteousness. That was enough to drive them to murderous intent toward him or to add to their murderous intent. But that was just for starters. Jesus was saying things that no rabbi had ever said. He was saying things that no one but God had ever said. There are many examples of that in John's Gospel, but I'm just going to point you back to the one we just saw. In verses 37 and 38, Jesus said, If any man is thirsty, let him come to Me 
and drink. He who believes in Me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. From whom had the Jews heard those same kinds of words before? From Yahweh. I keep going back to Isaiah 55. That's because Jesus keeps raising up themes that are from Isaiah 55. 700 years before Jesus came, that was written. Isaiah 55, starting at verse 1. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come. Buy and eat. Come. Buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not food? What is not bread? And your wages for what does not satisfy? And then catch this. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Sound familiar? Listen that you may live. Listen to me that you may live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. See, that's what Jesus is saying to the crowd at this temple right here in this passage. That's what He was saying to the crowd at Capernaum in chapter 6. You want life? Come to Me. Dine on Me. Drink from Me. Delight in Me. And you'll have the life of overflowing abundance that only comes from Me. The Father has given to the Son to have life in Himself and He gives life to whomever He wishes. Jesus said things only God gets to say because Jesus is from God and Jesus is God. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. That, beloved, is who we proclaim to this world as rivers of life who receive our water from the river of life. Jesus, the Son of God, is God the Son. Just as God called Israel, we now call every man, woman, and child to come to Jesus, to dine on Jesus, to drink from Jesus, to delight in Him, to receive real, abundant, everlasting life. Dear Father, we ask You to make every soul in this room respond in faith, in awe, and in obedience to the One who came from You. We ask it in His precious name. Amen.